Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechU. I am your host, Andrew Degler. In today's episode, we take a look at this very eventful week in European tech and listen to an interview with Zach Weisfeld, who is a vice president at Intel and the general manager of Intel Ignite, which is the company's startup program. So the program itself, it has been active already in Israel, where Zach is based, but also it has recently expanded to Germany with a new location in Munich. So it's a pretty unusual program in general, and we are going to learn more about it just a little bit later. But before we do that, let us take a glimpse at this week's news stories. First up, Deliver Unicorn Glovo, based in Barcelona, has landed 450 million euros in funding, which is the largest funding round ever for a Spanish startup. The round was led by Lugard Road Capital and the Luxor Capital Group, and saw participation from follow-on investors Delivery Hero, Drake Enterprises, and GP Bullhound. Glovo will use the money to expand presence in their existing 20 markets and focus more intently on the Q-commerce division. If you listen to our recent catch up event on Clubhouse with Glovo's co-founder Sasha Michaud, you may remember uh, that he was very bullish on this whole idea of Q-commerce and hyper-local delivery, and a couple of months ago Glovo actually already partnered with a real estate developer called Stoneweg to create a network of dark stores that would allow delivery of groceries and other everyday items in really short uh, time frames, like 10 minutes or even less. And there are more notable players on this field, including Gorillas in Berlin, which just raised 290 million US dollars and Deja in London with a more modest, uh, let's say, $20 million in seed funding raised to date. Next up, Otrium, a startup from Amsterdam that sells unsold clothing, has raised 120 million US dollars from Bond and Index Venture with participation from Age Roads Ventures. The problem that Otrium solves, and that I had no idea even existed, is that it turns out that 12% of all clothing produced in the world actually remains unsold. To put that in context, that's roughly 230 million garments in Germany alone, as explained by our reporter Dan Taylor. So Otrium has developed a platform where brands can sell these items and it has already attracted uh, really big clients of uh, brands like Karl Lagerfeld, uh, Joseph, Anin Bing, Bell, Staff, Rice and Asics. With the fresh funding, Otrium also wants to enter the market in the US. Moving south, online grocer Everly, based in Milan, Italy, has landed 100 million US dollars in a round led by Verl Invest. As far as I understand, Everly, uh, which was founded in 2014, does not have its own dark stores or warehouses like some other startups in the field, but it does have a team of people who pick and deliver groceries from the partner stores. So the startup so far has partnered with several major grocery chains like Lidl, Kaufland, and Carrefour, and uh, offers delivery in 70 cities in Italy, Poland, Czech Republic, and France. In 2020, its sales almost quadrupled, thanks to the pandemic, to 130 million US dollars. And one more funding round from the sunny Amsterdam, just to wrap up this section. Space tech startup Hyber has secured 26 million euros in EU funding and private investments to expand the world's first global IoT satellite network. So the idea, as far as I understand it, behind the startup is to allow temperature and pressure monitoring even in the most remote and hard-to-reach areas via a satellite connection. Now to the news from the land of IPOs, SPACs, and so on. The long-awaited public listing of Deliveroo happened on Wednesday, finally, but it certainly did not go the way the shareholders hoped it would. 
During the first day of trading, the company's shares went down as much as 30%, wiping about uh, 2.3 billion pounds from its valuation. Apparently, the main reasons for this lackluster performance are the company's treatment of its riders, together with the uncertainty of whether the UK will bring more regulation to the gig economy, as well as the shareholder structure that was proposed by Deliveroo. Quoting the Financial Times, a dual-class control will allow the co-founder and CEO of Deliveroo Will Shu to veto any attempt to oust him from the board by other investors, as well as block a takeover for up to three years after the IPO, the quote ends. So, all in all, not a great look for both Deliveroo and London as the IPO destination. Be it as it may, however, but WISE, uh, formerly known as TransferWISE, is still planning to go public on the London Stock Exchange. According to a report by Sky News, WISE and its bankers are in advanced talks about the creation of a new dual-class share structure for the company, and the goal of this reported new structure is to keep the voting control in the hands of Krista Karman, the co-founder and chief executive of WISE. However, it's also been reported that early investors in the company, like Richard Branson, uh, Bailey Gifford, and Andreessen Horowitz, will also be able to convert their holdings into this new class of shares. And of course, I have to mention a couple of specs on this news overview. The UK-based car buyer and seller Kazoo is going to list in New York by reversing into a spec called Ajax One in a deal that's valued at 7 billion US dollars. If all goes well, Kazoo will list already in the third quarter of this year and uh, it will have raised 1.6 billion US dollars in the process. Another SPAC merger announcement came this week from Germany. Air taxi startup Lilium plans to list on Nasdaq via a SPAC called Quell Acquisition Group. The deal was valued at 3.3 billion US dollars. Along with the SPAC merger, Lilium also has revealed their latest development, a seven-seater electric vertical takeoff and landing jet, reportedly able to cruise at a speed of 175 miles per hour at 10,000 feet and with a range of 155 miles, including reserves. And to wrap up the topic of SPACs, uh, the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, that's FCA, has launched a four-week consultation on rules changes with the goal of luring more SPACs to London. The FCA said in a statement cited by Yahoo Finance that it would look to, I quote, strengthen protections for investors and align rules more closely with other major jurisdictions, the quote ends. And so we'll get back to this one in a few weeks to see what sort of changes we can actually expect to see in the future. Another final topic for today, that's Facebook. This was not a great week for Facebook in Europe. It seems in Israel, the company has been sued by Shahar Ben Ami, the CEO and founder of a startup that's called Service Friend. Facebook allegedly acted fraudulently and with an extreme lack of good faith when acquiring the company back in 2019 for 13.5 million US dollars. According to the lawsuit, Facebook promised Ben Ami that he would receive Facebook shares worth over $5 million over a period of four years, as well as lead the development program for customers in the blockchain project. Long story short, that did not end up happening, and Ben Ami was actually fired in October 2020. A spokesman for Facebook said this claim is without merit and will be actively defended. So we'll see how that pans out in court. In the UK, in the meantime, Facebook is about to be subject of an in-depth investigation by the Competition and Markets Authority, that's CMA. The reason 
one is Giphy, which Facebook acquired last year. After nine months of an inquiry, CMA decided that, uh, I quote, this merger has resulted or may be expected to result in a substantial lessening of competition within a market or markets in the United Kingdom, the quote ends. It has now referred the case to an in-depth investigation, which can last, of course, another nine months or longer. So stay tuned to this one as well. Now, it is time for the featured interview of today's episode with Zach Weisfeld of Intel Ignite. Let's listen together. So if you can just uh, go ahead and tell a little bit more about what you've been doing over the past, what has it been, 15 years, 20 years you've been in the industry? Well, almost 30. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, so I've been in the tech industry probably in the, pe- in the past, I don't know, 28 years or so. And I actually started in management consulting, then moved to one of the earliest internet companies in in Israel. This is mid nineties. I was uh, I was working for our uh, one of the largest ad agencies, J. Walter Thompson, here in Israel. And they own the fully owned subsidiary. It was one of the early internet companies here called NetKing, and we were the second biggest uh, portal and probably the first digital agency. So I brought DoubleClick mm-hmm. to Israel for the first time. Uh, this was before they got acquired by by Google. Then I moved. To Microsoft uh, to actually start MSN in Israel. This was my first time in Microsoft. I spent three times at Microsoft in my career. So this was very early. You know, this uh, the same time that I've started MSN here. There were these two guys out of Stanford that, which I didn't get what they're doing. They tried to do a search engine, and I thought they're idiots because we just started MSN search, and uh, you know ended up with you know Google, right? But but it was uh, you know, funny how these things, when you see them, you don't realize until until sometimes it's too late. And then, you know, I did, I've spent about eight years in Silicon Valley, did a variety of companies there, and both and did a few companies here in Israel, from bootstrapping to raising $120 million and, and selling close to nothing to Google, and then uh, last exit about a year ago. But I've also been a corporate entrepreneur. So mid-2018, I left Microsoft for the third time. After uh, running an organization called Microsoft for Startups, uh, 110 countries, about $500 million a year spent on ecosystem development. I founded the first Microsoft Accelerator and then built Tel Aviv, Bangalore, Beijing, Shanghai, Berlin, London, Paris, Seattle, Sydney, 800 startups. They raised a bit more than $5 billion, 100 exits, 10 IPOs. The program did extremely well at the time and then left me 2018. I haven't seen my kids for too long built more Legos in one year than I built all my life before that. And uh, the now former CEO of Intel, Bob Swan, was on a visit to Israel. And uh, we met and asked me to join Intel to start its early stage startup program. Uh, It's called Ignite. And we're at our fourth batch now starting. We just finished yesterday's selection for our fourth batch in Tel Aviv. And we're in selection for our first batch in Munich. For Ignite. Great. So before we move on to uh, the Munich part, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions about Intel Ignite itself. First of all, it sounds like it's pretty late uh, that it that it got started, like 2019. I think most of the corporation of the level of Intel had uh, their similar programs going for years by that time. So look, um, I, I don't know what's late. And when I look, when I started back in 2011, the Microsoft Accelerator program, people said it late. It's late because there are so many accelerators. Who needs another one? And 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 uh, one of my VC friends said two things. He said that 
Not a single entrepreneur in his mind is going to join a Microsoft Accelerator. Microsoft was the evil empire at the time. And then the second thing, if they're going to join it, he's not going to invest in them because they're idiots, right? That's the way. And this is this was in 2011. I, I don't think it's late. I don't think it's ever late. But Intel has a very good corporate venture fund. So Intel Capital mm-hmm. has been around for 28 years. It's one of the top corporate venture funds, super active, great set of companies invested. So Intel covered a good portion of the work with startups through the venture fund, which many other corporates don't have that kind of muscle, that strong muscle. So Ignite is a new thing from that perspective. So I actually don't think it's late. I think there's a new turning point for many multinational corporations. I think many of them realize that they need to change. And what Ignite brings to Intel is much more of a startup mentality where Intel Capital brings a lot of the VC mentality to Intel. So uh, many companies, and you can follow what Microsoft, what happened in Microsoft with Satya Nadella and the whole growth mindset approach and making the company much more nimble, much more like a startup in, in many aspects. And this is what we're doing also at, at Intel. So I don't think it's late. I think that's all the multinationals are going through a phase now of being uh, re-looking at their ways of their culture and the way they engage with the world. So I think it's a perfect timing for such programs. And it's a cycle, right? So there was a cycle. I think many companies stopped doing these kind of programs, and and I think you're going to see some interesting new start points now. It's also really interesting that uh, an American corporation starts this sort of program uh, with a few batches in outside of the US, let's put it this way, in Israel in this case. Is it just because it was you who uh, founded the initiative within Intel? Yeah, so look... Microsoft, we did, we started in Tel Aviv and then we did Bangalore and Beijing and then we went uh, across the world into the US. Um, in Intel, similarly, we start here and then we go to Europe first and then we'll go to the US and, and Asia. I think that uh, specifically the Valley requires a different uh, mode of operation than some other places and Intel is a Silicon Valley company. So it makes total sense for us to do it in other places and then operate a bit differently. In the Valley also, I think, um, you know, Israel is an amazing market for such programs and such engagements. They're top, top founders, top disruptors you want to engage with. So it makes total sense. And I think there's a big, a really big opportunity in Europe right now, which is almost uh, uh, unmet. There's an unmet uh, need. And I think there's a great opportunity there. You know, that's we could have started in other places. I am here in Israel. I'm uh, highly connected here in the ecosystem. And, and uh, you can look at the kind of startups that already joined the program. We really have great access to amazing companies. All right. Let me take a small detour about Israel, because you just said that you start in Israel and then you go into Europe and then you go to the US. At TechEU, we actually include Israel in the European tech scene just for the uh, purpose of uh, data collection and uh, presentation. What do you think? Is Israel part of Europe uh, in terms of ecosystem or any other ecosystem, or is it just a thing of itself that doesn't have anything to do with anything else? Look, we, we also, we sometimes we include uh, Israel under EMEA and, and, uh, and the, under Europe. Uh, it, it, it really depends uh, if it's basketball or if it's a Eurovision con- song contest or if it's uh, anything else. I think, I think Israel stands by itself outside of Europe just because there's no market in Israel, right? For example, right? There's no local market. So Israeli companies look at the world as their market, where European companies many times look at Europe first, and then they go outside. They have a, a large local market to to attract. 
it, it's not the case for Israel. It's not that Europe is our immediate market. Actually, in most cases, U.S. is our immediate market, and, and only then Europe, Asia depends. So I think from multiple aspects, it's not Europe. Uh, the, the first market to go in IPO is, you know, is NASDAQ, right? It's, it's, not, not, in, it's not in the U.K. It's, it's, it's in the U.S. Your first uh, investors outside of the local investors will be in the U.S., so it, it really depends. And then on the other hand, it's super close to Europe. And uh, we have really great work relationship with many of the countries, many of the corporations. From a culture perspective, I think Israel connects better uh, San Francisco and New York than in you know, Berlin, Munich and, and Paris. So um, there is um, some, I think a bit of a better connection there also from a culture perspective. So it really depends. Sometimes it, does cons- it, it is considered Europe. Uh, definitely when there are grants included. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes it's, it's not, it stands by itself. If you look also from a multinational perspective, activities in Israel, you would see that there's a very big portion of U.S. corporations uh, active in, in a very big way in Israel. You do have the European and Asians, but, but I think the U.S. large tech corporations are super active here. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And so you are expanding into Lignite into, well, Europe. That is your start uh, program in Munich, also in Austin, Texas. But uh, uh, now it's uh, the Munich one is more relevant <laughs> to our today's conversation. So why Munich and what's going to happen there? Sure. So and, and I get the question a lot, you know, why Munich? Why not, you know, London or even Berlin, if you talk about Germany, right? So the way we looked at, at our expansion is we looked at two different maps that we tried to put one on top of the other. The one basic map is where does real interesting startups are happening around the world? Where do you see disruption? And when it comes to deep technology in Europe, um, you know, clearly London is a great place to be and, and there's lots of activity. You would, would question if it's Europe or not, but I don't know. But uh, London is clearly um, the number one place, and then you can look at uh, you can look at uh, Paris and Amsterdam, and and you can look at at, at Sweden, and you can look at at uh, in Germany. And in Germany, um, what we found out is Berlin is great. That Berlin is great with consumer companies. It's great with e-commerce companies. When we looked at deep tech, uh, autonomous uh, AI, Industry 4.0, IoT, Munich is actually very very interesting. There's great universities great people coming out of these institutes and there's a lot of industrial opportunities to go with the startups and then execute and, and do these POCs, et cetera. So we think Munich is a great place for deep technology. The second, when you, when you put the, the, the other map we put on top of it is where does Intel have significant engineering uh, workforce? And in Europe, our headquarter for engineering is in Munich. And then in Poland is, is second when you look at numbers of, of engineers. So Munich for us is the place where you have deep tech startups and Intel significant engineering efforts and people that could actually come and do some work and help the startups progress. Right. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, there's been a bunch of uh, uh, news stories. Well, not a bunch, but at least one uh, big news story about Munich just recently with uh, Apple committing to invest uh, 3 billion euros uh, uh, yep. yeah, over, over the next uh, three years or something like that. Is, so, so how do how do you see it? Is it going to sort of help to grow the ecosystem? Is it going to help you as an accelerator to get better founders, better startups? Or is it actually going to be sort of a competitive force that just draws the engineers from the market who would otherwise be able to found a startup? 
So absolutely, I love it. And it's like, I think uh, you, you talk about Austin as well as, as our one of our next spots. And Austin, similar, you see everyone moving into Austin. Now Austin is the, one of the hottest places in the US. So, so Munich, I think similarly, is going to get more and more interesting. The reason I'm not looking at this competition is, is look, in order for a startup ecosystem to thrive, you need many components. You need universities as feeders, you need local you know, investors, you need founders that built startups before and can come and mentor and, and, and pay it forward and help others. Uh, you need exit routes. So starting having more and more companies there to be able to acquire other companies and work with other companies is, is critical. But also, um, and, and you, you can see it here in Israel, when you have all these multinationals, you do get um, the young startup um, talent doesn't have all the knowledge of how to scale, right? And when you have multinationals that know how to build products at scale, you have talent that then could join startups and help them take themselves to the next level and scale. So I think it's all part of building a thriving, strong ecosystem. And the fact that, that um, you know, we're there, clearly Siemens is there, um, Apple, is move, um, Apple is moving in there, you're probably going to see others coming. I think it's a very positive signal for Munich, for Europe, uh, and for the ecosystem as an overall. Right. Okay, let's talk about the program then. So who is the program for? What are you looking for? Yeah. We are looking for early stage startups, so the pre-A. So if you look at the first... Uh, three batches that finished Tel Aviv, they were all uh, average funding was about four and a half million dollars. You know, Munich would, might be a little bit lower than that because uh, I think seed and A in Europe is a bit lower than than this, the, uh, the averages in Tel Aviv. But it's pre-A startups, great technology, super strong teams. And what's the difference, the way we uh, uh, pick versus maybe an investor, we need them to be also coachable. Right. So because we need to work with the teams, we need to, for them to be willing to learn uh, and listen to learn. So, again, technology team, big market and a great coachable team. That's what we're looking for. And variety of areas. It doesn't need to fall under what you would call an Intel area. So they don't need to develop a CPU or a GPU. They if you look at our companies, the companies you went through Tel Aviv, you have uh, companies in a variety of AI applications. You have companies in AutoML, you have companies, even we had a couple of companies in consumer applications. We had companies that are developing acceleration for uh, Bitcoin mining or security. So it's very varied group of companies. Uh, we're just looking for the best possible teams uh, that now establishing themselves in Europe and, and want to have someone like Intel, a very strong, credible technical brand and all the network and resources we could bring to bear to help them uh, succeed in a much bigger way and much faster. What's in it for Intel then? Like, uh, why would you want to have uh, startups that are not uh, connectable and embeddable into the Intel ecosystem in any way, shape, or form going through your accelerator? So I'll go back to how it's how again how Ignite started. Ignite started by 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 Bob Bob Swan, our former CEO, uh, meeting with a variety of people in in the ecosystem and figuring out that Intel is not as connected as it as it should to the disruptors of this world. And he said, "Look, we need from a strategic perspective to be perceived." as a super relevant company in many, many areas. And of course, AI is a big one, right? We're, we're seeing ourselves as a, as a critical company whenever it comes to data, data and AI. 
So we need to make sure that companies that are really dealing with, with uh, uh, data, big data, machine learning, AI, that would look at Intel as a relevant partner and as a relevant company to engage with, which many of them haven't looked at Intel so far as such, right? They Many of them looked at Intel, well, we do CPUs, what do they care about the CPU? We're not about the CPU. We're about changing the world of technology and about AI and about data. Right? So, um, so this is super critical and strategic for us that every startup that does something significant with AI and data would look at Intel and say, this is a company I want to be engaged with. Um, now, it's for a variety of applications. But first of all, we need to be accepted and perceived as such. And I think that's what, what you've seen we've done in Tel Aviv from becoming a company that most startups didn't really understand how are we relevant for them to now a case where most of the VCs in Israel now are, are actually hunting down companies to come and join Ignite. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's great to see uh, how the change have happened so quickly um, that, that now we are the program for the top startups in the, in the ecosystem to come and join. Similarly, we see, we see this thing now in Munich where people didn't understand originally why are we there, and now I think everyone makes uh, it makes total sense for people why um, why we're there and why we're doing this. So first thing, as I said, is is to change the perception of Intel to what it really is a relevant data and an AI company. The second thing, we're in a process of transitioning the culture of this company, and if it's things like fearless mindset and customer obsession, and if you hear now Pat Glasinger, our new CEO, talks about what what is the Grovian, uh, Andy Grove culture? So what is a Grovian culture? It's, it's, um, it's about embracing risk and change. It's about not being afraid to confront the reality and generate for confrontation, right? It's about paranoia as a, as a motivator. And if you look at all these things, these are what startups are about, right? We, as a, we used to be a startup many, many, many years ago, but we're, I think, trying to re-energize organization around specifically these kind of issues. And, and these kind of cultures. So changing perception, changing the culture, and then generally is open innovation. We want to hear, we want to learn, we want to understand better where the world is at, what are the um, um, different changes happening out there, and we want to be part of that. It kind of feels sometimes if you read a lot of uh, news around uh, the CPU world developments, let's say that Intel might be into some sort of dire straits at some point uh, uh, with uh, alternative uh, solutions emerging. So is this a reaction uh, in a way of in a, of sorts to these kind of developments? First of all, I would give myself too much credit if 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 Ignite was the you know the the thing to solve uh, you know the problem you just <laughs> talked about, but. No, I don't think it's a reaction for that. I think, look, uh, I didn't really, before joining Intel, I didn't realize how deep Intel in so many areas. Look, if you look at autonomous driving and you look at overall in, in AI and you look at drones and you look at LIDARs and you look at cameras and look at how many areas Intel is such a major player in. And, and people still tend to look at us as a CPU company. So still think they're on, on our XPU strategy, there's still a way to go. We're still a great company that leads the way uh, in, in the technology, in the process, in many areas. But there's also so many other services, software, and hardware-related activities in this company that it's, it's fascinating to see. And only when you're inside, you actually, you actually see this, this breadth of, of activities. And what's interesting is now as we're accepting so many companies in so many areas, they also realize how many things this company actually is doing and relevant for them. So 
I didn't, I didn't come to do this here at Intel to solve a CPU challenge. I actually think Intel is an amazing company that has a very long runway to go. And many people don't realize that because they, they're still stuck in a way that they perceive this company based on what it used to do in the past, still doing very well. There's so many other things that he does as well. Right. So that's clear uh, what's in it for uh, Intel, but what's in it for the startups? Do you actually invest in startups you accelerate? So no, so the model, look, look I'm in this business for building these kind of programs for 12 years or so. And I actually don't think that investing in the startup is what they need because we pick, as I told mm-hmm. you, we pick startups at their pre-A, probably some of the best startups in the ecosystem. That's just to, to give you the measure of that. We are just now a year from graduating our first batch in Tel Aviv. And the startups already raised about $200 million. These are early state startups, right? So 400% growth, $200 million for early state startups in a year. So this is so that means we pick startups that are ripe to grow and they're willing to come and join the program. Now, the reason they're willing to come and spend so much time with us, it's actually a very hands-on, very uh, um, engaged program, is because of the value they get out of the program. Uh, most of our referrals comes directly through our graduates into the program. They, they're out there, they're telling people why should, should they join. And basically, we're centered around four things we provide them. And it may sound like other programs. I think it's very, very different. I think one of the, one of the journalists called us the Harvard of startup programs because it's really hard to get in. So only less than 5% of people that apply get accepted. There is a big mentorship piece, but mentors for us are usually serial entrepreneurs uh, that comes from the ecosystem and spends hours every week with their startup. I'll give you an example. Uh, Rani Wellingstein, a founder of uh, Intercell, sold it to Cisco for $475 million and did startups before and after, worked with a company that we had called Shopik. Shopik is in a Amazon Go space, a great company that disrupts the uh, frictionless shopping experience. They worked across Europe as well. Uh, there is, uh, I think I said, about $11 million. So Rani probably spent four or five hours a week with them uh, with their board challenges, investor challenges, new customer challenges, production issues, etc. No equity taken, no pay taken, not by Ignite, not by the mentor, right? So this is one example. We have Intel mentors that are spending hours a week with them. Now, the Intel mentors, what they're really good at is building products at scale, at global scale around the world. So we had a company called Hyoto. They were, when they came to us, they had four and a half million dollars raised. Uh, They're in the NLP space in the car. So how do you divide the speakers in the car and how do you understand what they say based on their their lips movement? And our Intel mentor came in and had a different market market hypothesis. He said, look, I think you should go after retail uh, because there are challenges, especially in places with a lot of noise, that these touchscreens and the voice enhanced systems don't understand what people say. And he flew with them before COVID to Spain. They met with 15 customers over a day and a half, came back and lost the data. They pivoted, they raised additional funding, and it did really well for the company under COVID-19. So that's mentorship. We have workshops where we work with practitioners, not with consultants, that are the best in the world in, in what they do. And we, we go in and discuss uh, governance. So how do you run your board, chairman or advisory? How do you, much do you pay them? How much do you, where do you find them? We do uh, sessions on, on R&D and funding and everything related to startup life. We also worked, so far we worked with a company called Virtuoso that um, are one of the four companies in the world that are licensed to prep TED speakers. So they work with the companies of their narrative on a weekly basis and building their story 
sometimes the company would pivot because the story doesn't work. So we really work with the best in the world also on the workshops. Then we have something called Founder Circle. So the companies meet every week, zero entrepreneurs, bit of war stories, but, but intimate discussions on founder relations, investor relations, everything, and, and how do they act when they went to raise funding? It's, it's, it's a very intimate setting. And then they work with my team on a weekly basis. We have a CEO dilemma sessions. We have a scrum meeting with all the founders and their weekly pain points. As I said, it's a very hands-on program. At the end of the program, they meet some of the world's best investors. So Silicon Valley investors, New York investors, Asian investors to start working on their Series A funding. So customers, investors, the best mentors they could get. It's a fairly enhanced and advanced program. This is why we call it a start right. growth program versus an accelerator. Right. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask whether you call yourselves a corporate accelerator or any other accelerator at all. So first of all, again, I'm, I'm in this business for many years, as I said, and, and unfortunately, accelerators got a very bad rap these days. So no startup wants to go to an accelerator, period, right? It became co-working space with lectures. And in many cases, you, do, you provide equity for it. You, you give equity for it. Uh, we, we also try to rebrand the space. It's not, it's not easy to find that word that explains uh, what we do. So we call it a startup growth program versus an accelerator. But it does many things that the original accelerator was there to do, but it does it on that specific stage, which is post-seed or you know, pre-A, post-early uh, seed. And it does it with amazing teams that they can do it by themselves. This helps them make it much faster in a much stronger way. Right. But you do take equity, do you? No, we don't take equity. We don't take equity. And, and again, this is this, my philosophy in this is, and people ask, so how come? Why do you take equity? Look, for a large corporation to take equity in hundreds of companies, small equity in hundreds of companies sometimes doesn't make sense. Because just managing the small equity parts in hundreds of companies, it's not an easy challenge for, for the corporation. On the other hand, these startups may not always need us on their cap table. The good startups... There's lots of funding out there for great startups. So it's not that they need 100K from us. And if we see a startup that's interesting for us, we can always come in and invest uh, later with ICAP um, and, and invest in their A or B. Uh, it might be a, a bit of a premium there, but we'll know better if this is something we want to do or not. So the fact that we don't take equity opens up opportunities, both for startups mm -hmm. and for Intel. So that, that's the approach that I've been pushing for and, and at least for me worked very, very well throughout the years. So it's a 12-week, uh, very hands-on, very engaged program, which sounds like something that would be working great before COVID. And how did it work through the pandemic year? So when COVID hit, we were just about to launch our, we were the end part of selecting our, our second batch for, for Ignite in Tel Aviv. And people said, so stop. You know, wait, in summer, it's going to get over, you know, push it out six months. It, it's not going to stay forever. So we've actually decided to double down. We said, no, startups actually need more help now than, than even before. So we moved everything to Zoom, selection to Zoom, program to Zoom. It took us about two weeks to convert everything. I have to tell you, in some cases, it was blessing. And in some cases, it's still challenging. And there are still things that don't go well over Zoom. But uh, we just finished Selection Day at, for Tel Aviv yesterday. The, the one great thing about doing this in Zoom, uh, first of all, it works perfectly well. Everything is timed. Everything is working great. We have about 60. So our, our Selection Day 
and there are 60 people, about 30 VCs, 30 Intel executives. Uh, there are about 20 startups. Uh, every startup sees two different rooms with about 10 to 13 people in a room. And two start and every startup so every startup sees two rooms like that, and eventually we give ten companies the opportunity to join uh, our our program. And the good thing about the Zoom process, it takes away the herd uh, effect. So if they're usually in, when you do it in physical room, there's someone that's more vocal than others, uh, someone like me that is very noisy and uh, sometimes takes over the discussion. In Zoom, it's not it doesn't happen this way. It's it's much more efficient in the way it's managed. So it takes away that um, effect. The other thing, because we ask people to, while they're listening to the Zoom session, to write feedback and actually write it in words versus not just score, uh, we end up with much, much better and deeper feedback we provide the founders with, uh, even the ones that are not getting accepted, getting a very detailed feedback. So I think from a, from a selection perspective, it actually allowed us to do even better than, than usual. On the program perspective, as I said, there are things that don't work that well, especially when you need to feel the other side. You need to, uh, there, there are a lot of emotional things happens while you build a, a startup and, and this doesn't go as well through, through Zoom. Uh, but it did allow us to have much larger customer base of people that could engage with the startups. It allows the startups to record selling sessions, for example, and then listen again, because usually as a founder, you don't listen that much. And you're so busy pitching, so you miss a lot of great nuggets that happens on the call. And you can only analyze that after. And sometimes with our help, you're going to listen to things that you haven't heard before because someone may tell you, look, I'm not going to buy what you're telling me, but there's something else I need. And, and that is something that sometimes they don't listen to while they're, they're selling. So that was an this is an advantage. We're, we're adapting, you know, our uh, pitching sessions uh, uh, are now done through very short, uh, highly curated videos. We don't do demo days anymore. We do it in a very different way. So, so we, we've changed considerably, some for good, some we're still chasing. It's, it's all work in progress like everyone else in every industry. So the Munich program is also going to be like this, Zoom-based mostly? At the beginning, yes, and hopefully we're going to get back to physical world at a certain point, but uh, we're going to start, uh, for sure, we're going to start virtually because this is currently where the world is at still. Yeah. Do you have a space in Munich for that? Yes. Already? Yes. So we're in, in downtown in Munich inside a WeWork space. So we, this is usually our, our model of operation. We have a fairly large space so we can host the companies if they, sh if they want. They can move into our space. People ask me why in COVID-19 days you're actually even taking physical space because no one is using physical space anymore. And I actually think that we don't know how things are going to end up with, with physical spaces and offices. And I think having a space where your, your um, startup could even meet once or twice a week all together, uh, join sessions is, is important, even if you decide to skip the physical uh, space completely. So... We have a space, it's a beautiful space in the center of Munich, and this is where we're going to operate out of. Right. Yeah, no, this is interesting. And uh, does it actually mean, uh, in general, that you are looking for startups that are local, let's say, to that region? Or, uh, like, what's your sort of um, geography? How wide is it? So we're not limiting anyone, right? Uh, uh, but uh, I think that we do look right now in Munich as our, as our European play. Um, we mostly look at Tel Aviv as our Israel play, while we have 
people that apply from all over all over the world. Even I can tell you that on the Munich program, we had people applying from Tel Aviv as well as from Asia and from the U.S. So so we have people applying from all over. We have people that apply to Tel Aviv from Europe and the U.S. as well. So we don't limit anything. Uh, there are advantages. There, there, as I told you, the program is very hands-on and and very engaged. So a time zone does play a significant role here. So if you can't, in an Israel program, we're usually doing it. Uh, one of the days is Sunday. For the rest of the world, it's a weekend. Mm -hmm. For Israel, it's not a weekend. So so that's uh, you know a time zone related um, issue. So it, it it really depends. It's fairly open. Right. And uh, when you're saying uh, that Munich is your European play, does it mean that you are not going to uh, go for any more uh, locations in Europe? No. It means that right now, this is, uh, this is our um, only European play, and it may change in the future. Um, it's our, we're just starting. It's our first batch in Europe, and we'll, we'll take it from there. But it doesn't say that we're not going to expand uh, further into Europe. Yeah, sounds great. Now, Zach, thank you so much for answering all these questions. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Uh, good luck uh, with the selection. I'm very much looking forward to seeing which startups are going to be chosen for this program. And uh, yeah, take care. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And good luck to everyone in Europe and the rest of the world. <laughs> And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, do follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Our audio engineering is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are always very welcome at podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again next week. For now, take care and enjoy the weekend. Bye-bye.